Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. It says, while he was still speaking, this is Jesus, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, we're going to take a little bit of time this, this evening to unpack these verses. And in order to do so, we have to deal with something that should be pretty plain, but unfortunately it hasn't, it's been confused over the years. Jesus had brothers and sisters. All right, we just have to deal with that. There's denominations that teach that Mary is still a virgin, but the scriptures show very clearly that after Jesus' miraculous birth by the Holy Spirit, Mary and Joseph did make and produce siblings for Jesus. So I'm going to just show you some scriptures that deal with that real quick. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verses 24 and 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 say to us, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The scripture very clearly says that, G that Joseph had no sexual relationships with Mary until after she had given birth. When it's worded in that way, it's assumed that they did, but it was after. So keep that in mind. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 53 through 58. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, this is Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We'll break this passage down in a little bit when we get to chapter 13 in a couple weeks, or when we get to it in the later part of chapter 13 in a couple weeks. But the first thing I just want you to see is simply this. Not only does the scripture say he had brothers and sisters, it names them. Names them, James and Joseph and Jude and so on. And actually said he had sisters as well. Go to Mark chapter 3. We're going to see Mark's account of the passage that we're looking at in Matthew 12. But I want you to see Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. Because this will be important to us later on in our study of Matthew 12. This is in Mark 3, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers, Jesus' mother and brothers, came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now you say, Jim, that's almost word for word what we saw in Matthew. Yes, it is. Put a bookmark here in Mark 3 because we're going to come back to it. It'll help us in just a little bit. Go to Mark chapter 6, though. Look at verses 1 through 6. It says, He went away from there. Again, Jesus went away from there. And he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the village, his teaching. So again, here we see Mark's account of what we saw earlier in Matthew. And again, it lists his brother and his sisters. Uh, Luke 8, you don't have to turn there, but if you wanted to, you can write it down. Luke 8, verses 19 through 21, references the same story, and again, talks about that. But go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 10. John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Isn't that interesting? So here again, we see that Jesus had brothers. All right, we just leave that at that. Like I say, there's denominations that teach that Mary was a, is still a perpetual virgin. That's not what the scripture teaches. Jesus had mothers and brothers. And actually, later on, if you have ever done the study, you'll come to realize that James and Jude, two books of the Bible that you have, by the way, the book of James and the book of Jude, were both written by Jesus's, what I call, half-brothers. You know, because Jesus had a different father than James and Jude, but they had the same mother. But James and Jude were brothers of Jesus. They were half-brothers, if you will, and they actually later became believers themselves. You can actually do a study later on. I could have taken you into a lot more in Acts chapter 1, and it lists all the people that are in the upper room, the number numbering about 120, and it lists that Mary's there, his mother, and some of his brothers were actually there in the upper room. I think at the time of the cross, this is Jim Johnson speculating, but I think at the time of the cross, Maybe some of the things that had been witnessed to, if you will, in the life of Jesus and the scriptures started to take effect and Jesus' brothers started to click. We don't know if they all came to faith or not. We don't know. But we do know that James and Jude definitely became believers. And James himself, when he wrote his book, the Gospel of James, you go back and take a look at the beginning. He calls himself a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. He came not only to believe that he was the Messiah, he came to believe that he was God. But go back to Mark chapter 3. There was 120 in the upper room. Well, we don't know how many were in the upper room during the Last Supper. I know there were more than the 12. We know that for a fact. But at the same time, the Scripture says when they were waiting on the day of Pentecost and when the Holy Spirit came down, there were 120 at that time waiting. So how many were in there at the upper room in the, during the Lord's Supper? I don't know, but there were definitely more than the 12. But in Mark chapter 3, again, look at verse 31. We, I showed you earlier, this is almost a word-for-word -word account of what we saw in Matthew 12. But Mark brings out something that I haven't showed you just yet that will be helpful for us. In Mark 3.31, it says, And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. He's inside this house, and there's so many people in the house, they can't even get in. So they send word to the house to tell Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside. But Mark brings something out that the other Gospels don't bring out. Go up to verses 20 and 21. Mark tells us why they went to the house. Look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then he went home. This is Jesus, and this is Capernaum when it says he went home. Not his hometown, but he went to the place he was living. That's in Capernaum. He went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, 
They went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Isn't that interesting? The reason Mary and his brothers were outside the house to get him was they thought he was out of his mind. Now, we're going to stop for a second here and think about the fact that this is the same Mary that had the visit from the angels, the same Mary that had the wise men show up, the same Mary that had the shepherds arrive, the same Mary that had pondered all these things in her heart, the same Mary that knew more than anybody that this baby came from God himself, the same Mary who had enough faith in John chapter 2 to just tell um, the, the people who are taking care of the wine problem at the wedding, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Yet now, because there's so many people following him and crowds are gathering to the point that you can't even get to where he's at, Mary and the brothers go to get him because they think he's out of his mind. That reminds us, hopefully, a little bit of John the Baptist, doesn't it? Remember our study in, John, in Matthew chapter 11? How John the Baptist, the same one that said, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I didn't even know who he was until the one who told me to baptize said, the one you see the Spirit come down on, that's the one, baptize him. He must increase, I must decrease. If there's anybody that knew who Jesus was, it was John the Baptist. Yet even John the Baptist came to a point in his life and said, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Folks, if Mary and John the Baptist had times of confusion because of how Jesus did things, you and I will as well. And I just want to encourage you with that and tell you that's normal and it's okay to have your faith tested. It's normal and it's okay to have times where God doesn't do things the way you think he would and Jesus doesn't act in the manner you thought he would and he might not even act like you were taught that he would. And as we're going to deal with as we get into chapter 13, because you're going to see these are connected, how you respond in those times that he doesn't act the way you think he should or that you thought he would will show whether or not you really have salvation. How we respond to those times give evidence of whether or not we're truly saved or not. We'll get into that in just a little bit in chapter 13. But back here in Matthew chapter 12, as his mother and brothers are asking for him, and word gets to Jesus in front of all these people that his mother and brothers are outside, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the importance of eternal spiritual relationship with Christ. Look again at what he said. We'll start in verse 46 of Matthew 12. While he was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, stick with me here because I'm about to hopefully walk you through something that might get you kind of excited. First off, in John chapter 1, the Bible talks about how through faith we can become children of God. Jesus is using this opportunity about his earthly family to illustrate that you can enter into his eternal spiritual family through being the one who does the will of the Father. Go to John chapter 1 and look at verses 10 through 13. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 10, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So here the scripture says, even though Jesus made everyone in the world and he came to his own people, especially the Jews, and they didn't receive him. Everyone who did receive him, how do we receive him according to this passage? By what? Believing in his name. Don't miss that. By believing in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And remember, Jesus is not only God himself, he's God's son. And when we become children of God, we become brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We enter into a family relationship with him. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's cool. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, for those of us who have believed in his name, who have put faith in Jesus Christ, that he is not only God himself, he's the propitiation for our sins, he's the savior of the world, that he lived the sinless life, that he died on the cross on our behalf, that he rose from the dead, and that he'll give eternal life to all who believe. Those of us who have immediately become a part of the family of God, you right now are children of God. Boy, Satan sure doesn't want us to believe that, though, does he? You ever noticed how Satan is telling the lost people they're okay with God? And he's telling Christians that they're not okay with God? Isn't that messed up? He's telling the lost people they think they're okay. When I stand before God, I'm going to be all right. I'm a good guy. I'm not that bad. And they think they're okay with God when they're not okay with God. Yet at the same time, for those of us who have become okay with God, who are at peace with God through Jesus Christ, who stand in this grace, he says, he's not happy with you. You're not doing enough. You're not working hard enough. He doesn't love you as much as you think because you haven't earned it. And folks, let me just tell you, let the scripture speak to you. You're a child of God, and that's what you are. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that means Daddy. The Spirit, you see it's a capital S, the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, the scripture is very, very clear that if you are his, he's given you of his spirit to seal you with his spirit. We dealt with that last time we were together. And his spirit inside of you confirms in your heart that you're his child. The question is not making you wonder if you're saved. I believe the Bible teaches that if you're lost, the spirit will tell you you're lost. It's not a, too many preachers make a living off of trying to make, make people doubt whether or not they're saved or not. The Bible says if you're saved, the Spirit confirms it with, your, with you. You know you're His. Now, at the same time, go real quickly to John chapter 20. As you're turning to John chapter 20, let me just remind you that earlier in John chapter 
15, Jesus talked about the fact that he calls them his friends. I no, no longer call you a servant because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I call you my friends. But then he uses a different term for them in John chapter 20. Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my, what? Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm sending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. As Jesus was in that room full of all these people, that house that was so full that Mary and his brothers couldn't get in, and word got to Jesus that his mother and brothers were outside. Jesus says, let me tell you who my mother and my brothers are. He said, you see these disciples of mine? These are my mother and my brothers. These are the ones who have become my family. Now, Jesus was not saying that once we enter God's family through faith, we're to neglect our earthly families. There are some people that think, well, I'm now a part of God's family, so my other rest of my family, you know, they're on their own. You know, I'm, I'm just going to serve the Lord. No, the Bible is very, very clear, and I'm going to show you two passages that illustrate this. The Bible is very, very clear that God is not saying that now you've entered into God's family, you ignore your earthly family. Go to John chapter 19 and look at verses 25 and through 27. In John chapter 19, verses 25, it says, by standing, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We don't have time to get into this in too much detail, but there seems to be a lot of evidence. We've already looked at some of it tonight without realizing it, that most likely Jesus' father, Joseph, died before Jesus' ministry began. And Jesus, Jesus didn't even start his earthly ministry until he was 30 years old. Same time that a person would become an actual official priest. But at the same time, you notice how they didn't really mention Joseph much. much. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son and his mother's name is Mary? And in the other account, it says, isn't this the carpenter himself and his mother's name is Mary? And chances are real good that Joseph had died. And Jesus, being the oldest male, was responsible for his mother. And even in the midst of his sacrifice for our sins on the cross, with all that stuff that was going on eternally, he took the time to make sure that Mary was taken care of after he died. And he told John, you're responsible to take care of her. And from that point on, John took her into his home. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, I'm going to do my best not to get on a soapbox on this one. Because unfortunately, over the years... And it's the mindset of today the, the world and even the church, unfortunately, expects the church to meet the needs of the community. As a pastor for years, we'd have lots of people every day come by expecting the church to pay their light bill or give them some gas money and all these things. And it's expected that the church meet the needs. Let me just say real quickly, I'm 
if you do a study of this, you'll find that actually the benevolence of the church that was collected was to meet the needs of the body of Christ within the body. It was to take care of the family. If you see people's needs outside the church being met, it was not met by the church. It was met by the individuals of, that who were run into those people. For example, the story of the Good Samaritan. In the story of the Good Samaritan, did the guy take this man to the church to have him take care of it or to the synagogue? No, he took care of it out of his own pocket. But we've unfortunately over the years just expected if there's a need in the community, we'll go see the church. The church will pay your bill. Biblically, the Bible says that the church's giving should be to take care of the body first and foremost. I'm not saying that they should never pay a bill for an outside family or whatever, but this attitude of it being expected. And in this passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul's dealing with the widows in the church and who's responsible to take care of them. And, and, and start in verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, his local household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Look closely. He says, there are going to be widows in your church, but don't expect the church to be the first people to take care of the widows. They've got family members that should be taking care of them. These people took care of the kids when they were younger. The kids are supposed to return the favor to the parents when they get older. If a widow has no family, then the church should meet that need, and God will provide in that way. And so, folks, let me just say to you, the Bible's very clear. Just because we're part of God's spiritual family doesn't mean that we're to ignore our earthly families. And again, we could go on even further and deal with the fact that God desires not just you to be saved, but your whole household as well. And in that mindset, we should be still sharing the gospel, loving and sharing the love of Christ with our families. Don't become one of those people that says, well, I'm part of the family of God now. Poo-poo on my family. No. The Bible teaches that you are to have a heart for your family as well. But Jesus is taking this opportunity of his earthly family being there to illustrate the need and the opportunity for people to come into Jesus's family. And But if you go back to Matthew 12, though, Jesus says how you get into his family. And stretching out, this is verse 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is the will of the Father that we're to do in order to become his family? Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Real quickly, it's, simply, it's clearly stated. Go to John chapter 6 and look at verses 28 and 29. We saw it in John chapter 1. Whoever believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 6, is, verses 28 and 29. They said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. It can't be any more clear than that. You want to become part of the family of God? You've got to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that He's God Himself, and that He took your sin, and that He rose from the dead, and He'll give you eternal life if you give Him your life. Now, folks... Is there righteous living that he's wanting from us afterwards? Yeah, but he's going to work on that. He who began the good work is going to finish it. How you enter into the family of God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. All right? Now, 
let me say one more thing. If we become part of God's eternal family through faith in Jesus, that makes all of us family in Jesus Christ right now. Did you hear what I said? We love to say, well, I'm part of God's family. I'm God's child. How many people here can honestly say, you know, because the Spirit's confirmed it in your heart that you are God's child. You can raise your hand right now and say, praise God, I'm his child. Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Look around the room. That's your brothers and your sisters now. Because if we enter into the family of God, we all become family. Listen to me, though. Listen to me. This is why Jesus called his disciples brothers after his resurrection. That's why in the New Testament, I, don't, I could take you to a bunch of places. The scripture says brothers, sisters, when they write to the believers in the church. Sometimes in earthly families, siblings may rub each other the wrong way. I don't know if you've had more than one kid, but that sometimes happens. Does it not? But what keeps you together, even though sometimes you have a sibling that rubs you the wrong way? Your family, your brothers and sisters. So too it is with Christ's family. Our being made brothers and sisters should supersede our differences. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 13, verses 35, By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you're my brothers and sisters, by your love for one another. And so folks, let me say something to you. As you deal with your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you deal with your brothers and sisters who are not only here but a part of other churches, and brothers and sisters who maybe you have had issues with and if you've rubbed each other the wrong way, deal with them first and foremost with an understanding is that you are all family because of Jesus Christ. And that supersedes any personal differences that you may have. I'm just going to leave it at that and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Go to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 23. You see how it's connected to what we just read? How is it connected? The next verses show us how it's connected. That same day. Now, that doesn't happen very often in Matthew, by the way, folks. If you remember in our study of Matthew, he compiles things. But by the Holy Spirit's instruction, what we just read is connected to what's going next. That same day, Jesus leaves that house full of people where you couldn't even get to him, and he went out of the house, and he sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he get into a boat, and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds, and, sorry, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the spirit, then disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he who he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. Now, we don't have time tonight to deal with all these verses, but I'm going to cover the first part and the last part. We're going to skip over verses 10 through 17 because that is going to be a fun, fun, deep study, but we're going to do that next week. We're going to deal with the fact that this is only for those who have eyes to see, and what does that mean? But first, let's just realize that Jesus left the crowd at the house he was in, and he went down to the Sea of Galilee, and he got into a boat to teach the large crowd that followed him and met him there. Now, Jesus began to teach them using parables, and one of the parables he taught them was what we know as the parable of the soils. He said to the large crowd of apparent followers that some seed that the sower went out to sow fell on the hard path, and the birds came and quickly ate the seeds. Other seeds fell on rocky soil, and immediately something sprung up because the soil wasn't deep. Keep that in mind for a little bit later. He says that in the scriptures, because the soil wasn't deep. But when the heat of the sun hit and what had sprung up, when the heat of the sun hit what had sprung up, it withered because it had no roots. Other seeds fell on thorny soil, and even though the seed sprouted, the thorns grew with it and choked the seed, and it died. Now, if you look at Jesus' account, or the account of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew, it doesn't really say that the thorns grew with it. But quickly, put a finger here and go with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke's account of this shows us that Jesus said that the thorns grew with it at the same time. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. This will be helpful for us in just a bit. In Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4, And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to, his, to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed, as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, look closely, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell on good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here we see that in this instance, some seed falls on the thorny soil, and the thorns grow up along with it, and the thorns will choke it, and it dies. And some seed fell on good soil and produced a crop of grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And like I said earlier, before I get into verses 10 through 17 and deal with he who has ears to hear, we need to go to Jesus' explanation of this parable in verses 18 through 23. Mark's gospel shows us that Jesus' explanation of the parable was given to the disciples when they were alone with Jesus. As you read it in Matthew, it doesn't really read it that way. So go with me to Mark's account of this in chapter 4, and I want you to see that when Jesus explains the parable, he does it when he's alone with his disciples. The explanation is not in front of the whole crowd. Go to Mark chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 20. 
Again, he, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and those, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, and the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and when they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful." But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now we see from Mark's account, like I've been telling you over and over, as you study the Gospels, look at all the accounts because you'll get the whole story that way. Mark's Gospel shows us that most likely Matthew chapter 13 verses 10 through 23 happened later on, not while he was still in the boat, but when he was alone with his disciples and a few other people. So this is afterwards when they come to him and say, why are you talking to him in parables? We're going to deal with that next week. I cannot encourage you enough to come because I can't wait to show you. It's not what we've been taught for so long. It's not that he doesn't want them to be saved and that's why he's making it hard. We're going to actually let the scripture, the Holy Scripture, show us what he's saying there. And I can't wait to show it to you, but that's going to have to be next week. But for tonight, I want you to see that Jesus explains the parable I want you to notice something in his explanation. I don't know if you caught it in Matthew's account and Mark's account. In both Matthew's and Mark's account, Jesus clearly says that even though the hard path, the rocky soil, and the thorny soil don't respond to the seed properly, the seed was sown in their hearts. I want you to see this. Even though the hard path, the rocky soil and the thorny soil all do not respond properly to the seed. The seed was sown in their hearts. A lot of us have been taught that those who aren't saved, well, that's because God didn't want them to be saved and they didn't have a chance. And that if he's drawn you by your grace, his grace, you can't say no. And only those who are drawn are the ones who are going to be saved. And those who aren't going to be saved aren't drawn. Folks, let the scripture speak. And let me show you again. Look again at Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what? What has been what? Sown in his heart. The word was sown in the heart of the person who was the hard path. 
And as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself and endures for a while when tribulation comes and rises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who, look at it again, hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit. Go, go to Mark chapter 4 and look again at Mark's account. Look at verses 14 through 20. It says, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes, takes away the word that was what? Sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. Those who, in, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Folks, everyone hears. We're just going to let the scripture speak and let it be true. Everybody hears. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 21 through 25. Nobody will be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. James chapter 1, look at verses 21 through 25. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Did you catch that? Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word, but not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Again, the Bible says that we're to receive the implanted word, which is able to receive their, your, save, save your souls. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Does everybody hear? Everybody hears. Some people hear, and it's brief. They don't understand, and Satan comes, but it was sown in their heart. Others here appear to respond, but trouble comes, and there wasn't real salvation anyway, and they go away because they had no root. Others here, well, let me just put it to you this way. Some people hear, but don't understand it, but instead of searching deeper, they let the enemy take it away. They, don't, they do nothing with it, and it's gone. Some people hear and respond too quickly, they aren't deep enough. They like the sound of the gospel's promises and they appear to respond, but over time it will become evident that their response wasn't real because when trouble comes because of Christ, they walk away because they had no roots. Their salvation wasn't real. Oh, by the way, Mary and John the Baptist, was their salvation real? 
Did they have a time when their faith was tested? Are you the one? Yes. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 60 through 69. John chapter 6. We were just in verses 44 and 45. Look at verses 60 through 69. Jesus had just finished saying, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Commercial for next week. We're going to deal with that verse. We're going to deal with what it means that no one can come unless it's been granted by the Father. That's next week. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. By the way, did Peter and the other disciples understand the words of Jesus? Not all of them, but they knew this much. You are the one. Write this down and look at it later on because I don't have time. I want to keep moving. Write this down in your notes. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Jesus says to a group of people who are coming to be followers, he says, count the cost before you say yes. In other words, don't be one of those shallow responders who says, man, I like the idea of me praying this prayer and going to heaven. I like that. That's pretty good. That's a great idea. And there's lots of people who have been convinced through a one little, hey, you just pray this prayer and you can go to heaven. And they walked an aisle. They even cried a tear. But you know what? Jesus knew that it wasn't real salvation. And they had no root in themselves. They weren't deep. They didn't consider the cost. Jesus said, take seriously this thing we're talking about here. Don't just go, hey, that sounds great. Let's do that. No, have you, have you prayed about it? Have you sought to see if this was really the truth? Have you examined the scriptures to see if what these preachers are saying is actually what the Bible says? And, well, as much as this is a work of the Spirit, the Bible says you need to make an informed decision. The Bible teaches, folks, and I cannot tell you how it works. I have been encouraged by the fact that Jesus told John, sorry, told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the wind blows where it does and you see the evidence of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is of those who are born of the Spirit. You know what? That takes care of the whole predestination free will argument for me. God says, you're not going to figure out how I do salvation, but you're going to see the evidence of it. Stop trying to figure it out and just accept the fact that the Bible says that this work is God's work and he's the one who does it. Yet at the same time, man has a responsibility and everybody hears and everybody must respond. Leave it at that. Go for it. Yep. He said the wind hits everybody. That's a good point. That's a good point. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through 20. John says, children... It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're all not of us. But you 
have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. So here he says, there's going to be those among us who leave. But the fact that they left shows that they never really were of us. And many of us have been rocked over the years. Well, I thought so Susie was a Christian. I'm that couple. I thought, sure. Man, we used to go do knocking on doors with those people, and they've just turned away from the faith. You know what? The Bible says they never were. You can't lose your salvation. It's something God gives you, and he seals it, and he keeps it in heaven for you. We've already looked at all that in the last couple of weeks. Folks, just let the scripture be true, and every man a liar. If they leave, they never had it. And the, Jesus says in this parable, there's going to be some who respond to the seed, but the trouble comes, and Jesus doesn't do things the way they want, and I prayed for Mama not to die, and he let me down, and therefore I'm not going to worship him anymore because my mama died. And you know people like that. They never were saved. The Bible also says some people hear and appear on the surface. Listen closely, because this might speak to some of us in this room. Maybe some listening online right now. Some people hear and appear on the surface to respond, but they live too much in the world and of the world at the same time. So that the world chokes the word out. Remember how we look closely at Luke where it said the weed grew up along with it? Listen to me. Jesus himself said that we're to be in the world, but not of it. And there are too many, and I'm not going to call them Christians as only time will tell if they truly are. And that's one thing as parents, we even cautioned our children. Look, don't get too caught up in all this stuff that the world offers because... If you let it grow up with you and it's a part of your life where you got your church life and you got your world life and the two are growing together, the Bible says you might not have real salvation and that things of the world are going to win. Go to 1 John again. We're in chapter 2. Look at verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can write it down and look at it. Chapter, 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, first part of verse 9, Paul says, Demas, who was in love with this world, has left. He had been working side by side with Paul, but he left because the things of the world were more interesting. By the way, do you know that those disciples that went away because Jesus' teaching was too hard were a picture of, the th of rocky soil? When trouble came, they went away. And also Judas is a picture of the thorny soil. Why did Judas walk away? Because Judas loved money, the things of the world more. Judas was all right. He looked like one and he fooled everybody. Nobody else had an idea that Judas wasn't one of them, had never been one of them, yet Judas was looking for the earthly kingdom. Judas was ready for Jesus to set up his kingdom now, and who's going to sit on your right, and who's going to sit on your left? And as he got closer and closer to the cross, it became more and more evident that Jesus wasn't going to set up this earthly kingdom now, and he's going to let himself be killed. And Judas pretty much said, I didn't sign up for this. And he was offered some money to betray Jesus, and he said, you got a deal. Judas is a picture of the thorny soil. My encouragement to you is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to abide, you focus on him in the world. You can't be taken out of the world. Jesus said, look, as I was in the world, so you're in the world. Jesus was in the world, he just wasn't of it. We don't, I'm not saying that we as Christians need to get out of the world and make our little Christian enclaves and Christian camps where we, nothing happens. No, 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 we have to be amongst the world. God's going to use us as his light in the world, but don't 
be thinking that you can play both sides. The Bible says that in time, most likely you're going to lose to the things of the world and your salvation wasn't really real. Some people, though, hear the word. They consider the cost. They live in the world, but they're not of it. And their belief is real and it abides forever because it's God who knows the heart and he's the one who gives us his spirit to dwell in us and seal us as his forever. Let me give you some encouragement for those of you that the Spirit's confirmed that you're His, and the things of this world have no pull on you, and you love the Lord, and you know that you're here until He comes to get you, let me give you some encouragement. Go to John chapter 6. Go to John 6. Look at verses 35 through 40. In John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40, Jesus says, And this is the will. Sorry, that's verse 39. Go to verse 35, like I said. I'll be obedient this time. 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Folks, do you see it? Jesus said he's going to lose how many that the Father gives him? None. If you've been given to Jesus by the Father, we're going to deal with that next week. Those who is pleased to give him. If you're one that has been given to Jesus by the Father, you're sealed. Go to John chapter 10. Look at verses 27 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Oh, by the way, some people have said, Jim, yeah, the Bible says that no one will snatch you out of God's hand, but you can walk out. Actually, what did Jesus just say? I will lose how many that the Father's given me? None. If you walked out, you were never His. The Bible's very, very clear. You want further proof of what Susan just said? Go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now he, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Sounds like they're saved, right? But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Did you catch that? Jesus is never going to even sign the deal with someone whom he knows doesn't really believe. We may be fooled, and we may be fooled when we get to heaven that people we thought were going to be there aren't there. But Jesus will never be fooled. That's why in John 6 he says, look, don't, I, I'm only talking about those the Father gives me. I know who is and who isn't. But we don't. So what is our responsibility? To make the right choice 
And how do you become good seed? I'm sorry, good soil to be able to respond to the seed? You've got to come next week for that. That's the commercial. So if God knows who's for real, how will we know? The Bible says there's going to be evidence of salvation in our lives. And that's evidence of the Spirit being in us. Fruit of the Spirit. Again, write these down time-wise. We don't have time to go to them all. But in Galatians 5, write this down, verses 16 through 24. The Bible talks about the evidence of the flesh. And it gives all the evidence of the flesh. And then it says the evidence of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience and gentleness and kindness, so on. All right? The Bible is very clear that there's going to be an evidence of the Spirit being within us. There's going to be days where you won't look like it. But on the whole of your life, we've been looking at this. If someone was watching you, had they seen Jesus? Have you grown in your relationship with him? Do the people are saying, that person's looking more and more like Jesus? That's what we're looking for. And that's what Peter was talking about. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I want you to see what Peter says here. Verses 3 through 11. First, 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, Peter says to Christians, look, if you are his, you, all you do now is work on allowing the spirit of God to produce in you more than just faith, affection, knowledge, brotherly kindness, all these things. That's where you should be saying, Lord, I, this is, you're the gardener. You, know? you do the work in me and believe that he will and be striving for that. Don't be one of those Christians that says, thank God I'm saved. I'm looking forward to going to heaven one day and cross your arms and just sit back and judge whether everybody else is as righteous as you. Folks, I'm going to tell you. In the ministry that God's called me to in these last days to go to the church, especially in America, to wake them back up to what it really means to know the Lord and to know His Word and to be led of the Spirit in a biblical manner. I deal with so many churches and so many, I'm going to put it in quotes, Christians, quote unquote Christians, who are stuck in their walk with the Lord. They got saved supposedly, back in 1965, but they haven't learned to grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, I've seen many older people become less and less like Jesus Christ and their longtime church members. And they'll tell you how long they've been a church member, and they're proud of the fact that their name's on the charter roll. But you don't see evidence of Jesus Christ. You don't see evidence of the Spirit. And I say to you, don't be one of them. You say, Lord, are people seeing more and more of you and less and less of me? Are they seeing love 
and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness when they sit in my pew or park in my spot. I've gone from preaching to meddling. I'll stop right there. Let me just say, the Bible also says that some people produce bigger crops than others. We did see that in our story, didn't we? Some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. Listen to me. Seek to allow God to do through you all that he desires, but don't hurt yourself by playing the comparison game. That's something Satan's going to do. As you seek to be used by God and grow in your walk, Satan's going to come and say, but you're not doing as much as Jim, or you're not doing as much as Sue, or you're not doing as much as this person. You tell Satan, look, I'm going to do all that God has for me to do, and that's all I'm going to do. Because if you look at the parable of the talents, he gave some five, another two, another one, each according to their ability. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, my buddy, Ray back there, whenever we play golf, he loves to quote Romans 12, 3 to me. It's the only verse he knows in the whole Bible, but he loves to quote it to me. And that verse says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your gift is this, do it in proportion to your faith. Listen to me. The Bible says that even though some people are gifted to preach, not all are gifted to preach to the same size crowds. Some people are gifted to work in a small group one-on-one and do discipleship. Some are gifted to teach in that way. Some are more comfortable in front of the bigger crowds. I'll be honest with you. The bigger the crowd, the more invigorated I get because God's wired me to be able to connect with a large group of people all at once. And that's a gift I know he's given me. And I struggle sometimes in the intimate settings of one-on-ones. I love crowds of people. I love seeing you fellowship. I'd be happier if you just leave me in the corner alone while it goes on. But I want to get up and speak to the whole group. There are others that you, preachers would say, I know he's called me to preach, but I'm not comfortable in that big group. I'm the opposite. And each of us need to understand what it is that God's gifted us to do. And don't fall prey to the comparison game. Some are 100, some are 60, and some are 30, and they're all good. Don't worry what you are. Just to be everything God wants you to be. And avoid the temptation to accomplish more. Listen to me as I close. Avoid the temptation to accomplish more. That sounds total opposite of everything we've been taught in the church. We're taught to dream big dreams for God, achieve great things for God. Listen closely. That's the attitude that Satan had when he wasn't satisfied with the role that God had given him, and he wanted more. Jesus took the role of a servant And he humbled himself, even though that role and the plan God had for his life was for him to die the death on a cross. Jesus' attitude was, he's God, the Father, and I'm the servant. John the Baptist said what? When they said, are you the Christ? He said, a man can only receive what he's been given from above. My role was to be the friend of the bridegroom, but when the bridegroom comes, the bride belongs to him. He must increase, I must decrease. And Jesus said, of men born of women, none have risen greater than John the Baptist. And his role was for a season, and then God had him die, and he was done. David accomplished God's purpose in his life, and when his time was done, his time was done. Every one of us have a different role. You will find so much joy in your walk with the Lord if you stop trying to be like everybody else and just be who God's called you to be. And some will be 30, some will be 60, and some will be 100-fold, and we won't know till we get to heaven.
That's good with me, and I hope it's good with you. Come on back next week. I can't wait to dive into the deep stuff. I love you. Thanks for coming.